Please pray with me. Almighty God, reigning King, before you every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord to the honor and glory of your name. As we open your word, O God, teach us your ways so we might know your truth and walk in your truth. Give us hearts that are undivided for you. Guard our minds from all distractions. And right now, Lord, I ask that you cleanse me, your servant, of all sin that defiles me. Holy Spirit, make me a vessel worthy of your filling. Then fill my mouth with your message for your people. Help me to speak the words of this message clearly. This I ask in the precious and powerful name of Jesus Christ, our conquering King. Amen. Have you been invincibleized? In Romans chapter 5, verses 9 through 10, Paul speaks the language of an invincibilizing salvation. He writes, Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies we were reconciled to God by the death of his Son, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. Of this scripture, author Dane Ortland writes that being saved looks ahead to final salvation, referring not to the moment of conversion in this life, but entrance into the presence of God in the next. He says it is impossible to be truly justified at conversion without God looking after us right into heaven. As I read this, I could hear Pastor Richard Harris saying God will bring all of his people all the way home. Ortland goes on to say that our conversion, our authentic regeneration, is the invincibilizing of our future. You see, we were enemies when God came to us and justified us. How much more will God care for us now that we are his friends, indeed his sons? God has already executed everything needed to secure your eternal happiness. And he did that while you were an orphan. Nothing can now unchild you, not even you. Those in Christ are eternally imprisoned within the tender heart of God. You see, Ortland is saying that those who are in Christ have been invincible-lized. This creative use of the word invincible means to be too powerful to be defeated or overcome, indestructible, unconquerable. Haman believed that he was invincible 
that he couldn't be destroyed or conquered. But in Esther chapter 7, he is defeated and destroyed. All because he chose to attack the wrong people. God's people. God's covenant people. They are eternally invincibilized. Through Abraham, God created the nation of Israel, his covenant people, and he set them apart for his redemptive purposes. And until Abraham's offspring, Jesus, arrived, they could not be destroyed. They were invincibilized. This is the powerful truth behind God's providence at work in and through King Ahasuerus, Haman, Mordecai, and Esther. The truth that emerges in Esther chapter 7 is that God's covenant people will ultimately triumph over every enemy. We'll look at that in our two divisions, Haman's discovered deed and Haman's defeat and death. Our first division is Haman's discovered deed. Esther chapter 6 verse 14 through Esther chapter 7 verse 6. If you'll open your Bibles, you can follow along with me. Now Haman had just returned home after suffering the humiliation of honoring Mordecai. His head is covered and he is in mourning. Distressed and likely tearful, he tells a far, far different story than his wife and friends expected. Now remember, after Esther's first feast, they advised him to build the gallows and hang Mordecai. Then he could merrily go to the second feast. Haman arrived at the palace very early the next morning to get the king's permission to hang Mordecai, but he was forced to honor him instead. Because of all that happened, Haman's wife says in chapter 6, verse 13, If Mordecai, before whom you have begun to fall, is of the Jewish people, you will not overcome him, but will surely fall before him. Then in verse 14, while they were still talking, the king's eunuchs arrive and hurry to take him to Esther's second feast. And unbeknownst to Haman, even more devastating news awaits him. His wicked deed is about to be discovered. Esther chapter 7 verse 1. The king and Haman went in to feast with Queen Esther. Now at this point, neither the king nor Haman knew that Esther was a Jew. Five years into her marriage, Esther was still heeding Mordecai's instruction to keep her heritage a secret. After marrying King Ahasuerus, she assimilated more and more into the Persian culture. She had to cease to live in any way as a Jew, although she does still identify herself as a Jew, one of God's set-apart covenant people. Only Mordecai and possibly a eunuch or two knew that she was a Jew. Haman arrives at the palace for the second feast, and though he's disturbed by the events that had occurred earlier in the day, he puts on his best poker face. 
He thought he was safe. After all, he had been restrained from asking the king for permission to hang Mordecai. Instead, he obediently endured the humiliation of honoring Mordecai. This surely pleased the king. This sets the stage for the heightened drama that is about to unfold. Verse 2, And on the second day, as they were drinking wine after the feast, the king again said to Esther, What is your wish, Queen Esther? It shall be granted you. And what is your request? Even to the half of my kingdom it shall be fulfilled. Esther discerns it is finally the right time to make her request. God's hand of providence set the scene and prepared everyone involved. Haman is unnerved and for once humbled and silent. Ahasuerus is curious charmed by his beautiful wife and satiated with food and wine. More than that, God had providentially reminded him of the faithfulness and loyalty of his Jewish subjects. And he promised for the third time to grant Esther whatever she asked. It would not be easy for him to back out of his commitment. Esther responds in verses 3 and 4, saying, If I have found favor in your sight, O king, and if it please the king, let my life be granted me for my wish and my people for my request. For we have been sold, I and my people, to be destroyed, to be killed, and to be annihilated. If we had been merely sold as slaves, men and women, I would have been silent. But our affliction is not to be compared with the loss of the king. The word favor is translated from the Greek word charis, which means grace, unmerited favor. Esther is cautious, submissive, and humble before the king whose favor is never guaranteed. King Ahasuerus is a volatile man. Thankfully, that is not so when you and I approach the king of kings. His very character is gracious. His every action is infused with grace. All who have placed their faith in his son, Jesus Christ, have found favor in his sight and can approach the king of kings with confidence. Esther had no such confidence with the earthly king, Ahasuerus. She knows that his anger might be triggered by her request, especially when it reveals a truth she has hidden from him for their entire marriage. Her people are the Jews. She is a Jew. He could very well become enraged and say, off with her head. Esther is subtle, strategic, and wise in presenting her petition to the king. She says, if I have found favor, if, I ha uh, if it please the king. Those are words of utmost respect, humility, and submission. Words that reflect an attitude befitting the powerful king of Persia. Next, Esther focuses the king's attention on the fact that her life was in danger. 
This appeals to his love for his queen. He has shown Esther that he still loves her by extending the golden scepter to her when she broke protocol and appeared in his court uninvited. Esther has also noted that in all three of the king's invitations for her to petition him, he has asked, what is your wish? What is your request? So for her wish, Esther says, please let my life be granted me. For her request, she says, grant life to my people. In verse 4, Esther tells the king that she and her people have been sold. Though she does not name Haman, her words shift the focus to the one who offered to pay the king. Remember, Haman offered to pay the king 10,000 talents of silver to kill the Jews. In Esther chapter 4, verse 7, we are told that this particular fact was specifically related to Esther. Another fact that she knew but wisely left out was the fact that this genocide was approved uh, as a royal edict written in the name of King Ahasuerus and sealed with the king's signet ring. Esther uses the same exact words written in the edict. Her people were to be destroyed, to be killed, and to be annihilated. Remember, Haman left no stone unturned. He wanted them all gone. Esther then adds that if she and her people had just been sold as slaves, she would not have bothered the king. Again, this is great strategy by Esther. She shows the utmost respect for the king's property, herself included. In verses 5 and 6, the king responds, saying, Who is he and where is he who has dared to do this? And Esther said, a foe, an enemy, this wicked Haman. Then Haman was terrified before the king and the queen. The answer to the king's questions is Haman. He is the one who dared to order the genocide of the Jews. And he did so with the king's approval. But if you dig deeper into the grand meta-narrative or overarching story of the Bible, the answer is Satan. Satan is the foe of all humankind, our enemy, and he is wicked. But scripture teaches that his power over us is limited. He can only do what God permits him to do. He is also a defeated foe. Jesus Christ vanquished him on the cross by dying as God's uh, lamb, perfect lamb of God and our substitute. He shed his own blood to atone for our sins. His resurrection from the dead triumphed over sin and death and is ultimately a complete triumph over Satan and his demons. Because this is true, God's covenant people will ultimately triumph over every enemy. You and I must remember that Satan is defeated. Further, because Jesus died on the cross and was raised to life on the third day, 
Believers are given new life in him, a life infused with the power of the Holy Spirit. Therefore, Satan and his demons have no true power over us, and believers cannot be possessed by Satan and his demons because they are indwelt by the Holy Spirit of God. He cannot coexist with evil, that evil that is Satan and his demons. Haman, however, is enslaved to the prince of this world and acting as one of Satan's minions. And he is not the first in Israel's history to do so. If you trace God's work of salvation, his unconditional covenant of redemption from Genesis to Revelation, it also traces the work of Satan. He is behind every attempt to destroy the people from whom God promised the Messiah would come. In Esther, Satan uses Haman as his instrument to destroy the Jews. But because all of God's promises, all of God's covenants with his people will be fulfilled, Satan cannot and will not prevail. Even when it seems like all is lost, believers rest assured that God is a triumphant God. In the end, he wins. Therefore, God's covenant people will ultimately triumph over every enemy. For his part, King Ahasuerus still does not connect the dots and associate Haman or himself with this plot. But clearly Haman does. He recognizes the words of the edict that came from his own depraved mind. And he is terrified, overwhelmed with fear. In less than 24 hours, Haman's life progressed from honor to humiliation to horror. In him, we see the reality that awaits everyone who is not in Christ. All who reject God's Savior, Jesus Christ, are his enemies. They will ultimately be utterly defeated by the Lord God Almighty. But those who are in Christ, those who have been saved from sin by grace through faith in Jesus Christ, are victors over every enemy. When it looks like evil is winning, we rest in God's ultimate triumph over every enemy. That's our first truth. Believers rest in God's ultimate triumph over every enemy. What does your enemy look like right now? Where do you see evil prevailing in our world today? And how might a renewed faith in God's sovereign power and ultimate triumph encourage your heart? So many of us battle the enemies of fear, worry, worldliness, and addiction. The evils of war, global conflicts, abortion, genocide, poverty, and racism permeate our world. 
how we need God. How we need to renew our faith in his sovereignty, his power, and his ultimate triumph over all these enemies of our souls. We need to be reminded every day that believers have been invincibilized. While scripture teaches that we will battle sin and evil in this life, we have the assurance of knowing that Satan is a defeated foe and a limited enemy. God has already claimed victory over him, and God's victory is our victory. As believers, you and I can rest in God's ultimate triumph over every enemy. For unbelievers, the story is vastly different. This is vividly illustrated in Haman's defeat and death. That's our second division, Haman's defeat and death, Esther chapter 7, verses 7 through 10. Verse 7, And the king arose in his wrath from the wine drinking and went into the palace garden. But Haman stayed to beg for his life from Queen Esther, for he saw that harm was determined against him by the king. The king is understandably angry. Normally, such an offender would be put to death immediately. Instead, the king arose in his wrath and went into the palace garden. Did you wonder why? Is he unable to function without his advisors, Haman being the top advisor? Or was he unsettled about how to save face in dealing with the problem that he carelessly helped? to create. His dilemma is solved by what Haman does next. Verse 7 says that he stays to beg for his life from Queen Esther. Haman knows he is in big, big trouble. With his dirty deeds exposed, the boastful bully is reduced to a whimpering coward. The providence of God produces an incredible irony that no doubt delighted Jewish readers for generations. Haman, filled with rage toward a Jew who refused to bow to him, is now the one bowing before a Jew, a Jewish woman, and he is begging for his life. The literal translation of the word bowing means that he is falling on his face or throwing himself on the queen. Haman is desperate. Harem protocol dictated that he leave Esther's presence when the king did. Being alone with any woman from the king's harem was completely inappropriate. And even in the presence of others, no man could come within seven steps of any of the women of the king's harem, but especially not the queen. Imagine the level of Haman's desperation to not only remain alone with the queen, but to throw himself on her couch. This is what the king sees when he returns from the garden. Verse 8, And the king returned from the palace garden to the place where they were drinking wine as Haman was falling on the couch where Esther was. 
And the king said, Will he even assault the queen in my presence, in my own house? As the word left the mouth of the king, they covered Haman's face. Haman is immediately condemned to die. Again, we see the providence of God in the exact timing of the king's return, right when Haman was falling on Esther's couch. Some Jews say that the angel Gabriel pushed Haman so that he fell on Esther's couch just as King Ahasuerus was coming back into the room. Now, earlier in the day, Haman covered his head in humiliation. Now, the king's henchmen cover his head in preparation for his execution. The Jewish audience certainly cheered at this point in Esther's narrative. Haman is finally getting what he deserves. This perfectly illustrates the biblical truth that God's covenant people will ultimately triumph over every enemy. The covering of Haman's head extinguished all light and he entered a darkness he is experiencing even today, an eternal darkness known as hell. Haman is completely defeated. There is no hope for him, none. His destiny is the destiny of all who reject Jesus Christ as their personal Lord and Savior. But it does not need to be so. Turn from your sins. Repent. Confess your sins before God and receive Jesus Christ as the Lamb of God who takes away your sin. In Him is the light of life. In verse 9, it records another ironic twist. It says, Then Harbona, one of the king's eunuchs, um, in attendance to the king, says, Moreover, the gallows that Haman has prepared for Mordecai, whose word saved the king, is standing at Haman's house, fifty cubits high. And the king said, Hang him on that. Somehow it had become known that Haman built gallows to kill Mordecai. Maybe Haman was moaning and groaning about what happened that day as the eunuchs hurried him to the palace. It's also entirely possible and in keeping with Haman's character that he bragged about what he intended to do before he had the permission to do it. After all, he was so sure that the king would agree to his wicked plan, he already built the gallows. Haman's boastful pride and arrogance led to his defeat and determined how he would die. The eunuch also gave the king the proverbial last straw for Haman. The eunuch says that Mordecai is the one whose word saved the king. Once again, God providentially reminds the king that the man Haman wanted to murder was the very Jew who saved his life. The king's wrath burned within him and without hesitation or one word of advice from his advisors, he issued Haman's death sentence. Hang him. Verse 10. 
So they hanged Haman on the gallows that he had prepared for Mordecai. Then the wrath of the king abated. Only the death of Haman satisfied the wrath of the king. In ancient times, those hung on a tree like the gallows or a cross were considered cursed. A cursed man dying on a tree to appease the wrath of a king points us straight to Jesus Christ, who is the Lamb of God. In, in John 1, 29, John the Baptist proclaims that Jesus is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Haman was cursed for his sin. Jesus was cursed for our sin. In 2 Corinthians 5.21, the Apostle Paul says that for our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Commentator Ray Stedman connects this verse with Esther chapter 7 saying, On the cross, Jesus became Haman. Jesus was made selfish, cruel, grasping, proud, cunning, slimy, and evil. And the only answer that God has to that is to nail it to a cross, put it to death, and that is the end of Haman. That is what the Bible says took place on the cross of our Lord Jesus. He became sin, and God put him to death. The terrible, awesome truth is that Jesus bore the curse of our sin on the cross. In the case of Mordecai and Haman, the guilty died in the place of the innocent. In the case of Jesus and sinners like you and me, the innocent died in the place of the guilty. This alone abates or satisfies the just wrath of the King of Kings against our sin. This alone invincibilizes all who place their faith in Jesus Christ. Sin and death are our greatest enemies. The Lamb of God has conquered them both. And with our sovereign God still on his throne, his covenant people can trust that they will ultimately triumph over every enemy. Indeed, we are more than conquerors through Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God, who loved us to death. Our second truth is believers are more than conquerors through Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God, who loved us to death. How are you living in the victory the Lamb of God died on the cross to give you. In what circumstances could your trust in God's invincibilizing grace use a little boost? Victory often comes at the point of apparent defeat. The cross appeared to be Satan's greatest victory, but proved to be his greatest defeat. 
and our greatest victory. God is a triumphing God. He is immutably sovereign. He moves the hearts of the rulers of earthly kingdoms, every last one of them. Spiritual eyes discern the fingerprints of his providential care everywhere. In fact, discerning God's fingerprints and trusting him when we cannot see him at work is what spiritual maturity is all about. When all around you craters and crumbles, when disappointment and defeat overwhelms your heart, remember the Lamb of God. He loved us to death, dying on a cross to make us more than conquerors. The Lamb of God died to invincibilize us. Truly believers are more than conquerors through Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God who loved us to death. Esther chapter 7 ends. The evil Haman is dead. Oh, how the Jews must have cheered. But when the cheering stopped, the problem remained. Haman's terrible edict could not be repealed. The command to kill all the Jews remained in effect. What could Esther and Mordecai do now? The answer? Trust God. God invincibilized the nation of Israel. They could not be annihilated or destroyed. God has invincibilized all who belong to him by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. He was on his throne then, and he is on his throne now. He has defeated one enemy after another, and his covenant people will ultimately triumph over every enemy. Have you been invincibilized? Haman had not been invincibilized. Therefore, his sin swiftly moved him from honored friend to hanged foe. In this dramatic turn of events, Charles Swindoll says, we can see the movement of God's hand throughout the lives of Esther and Mordecai. We can see his moving in the heart of King Ahasuerus. We can see him as he works his own will, even through the wicked plots of Haman. The book of Esther is not simply an entertaining story, but also is instructive about how our God works in the world. We may be tempted to see Satan's plans as invincible and unstoppable as we read this book of Esther. But God proves that he can override even the most complex of plots. The truth is, God has invincibilized his people. In Christ, we are eternally imprisoned within the tender heart of God, and we will ultimately triumph over every enemy. Please pray with me. Holy, holy, holy are you, Lord God Almighty. 
There is no one like you, O oh God. You are sovereign, you are merciful, and you are loving. You are the God who triumphs. We praise you for the amazing grace you extend to us, to save us and to sanctify us. We praise you for sending Jesus to show us who you are and how far we fall from your righteous standard. Father God, keep us mindful of our sin so that we never ever forget or take for granted the costly saving work of our Savior, Jesus Christ. As we work through our time together in the book of Esther, I pray that you would keep our hearts fixed on the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Teach us what it means to live in his triumph over sin and death. Show us how to trust that your victory is our victory. This we ask in the name of Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God. Amen.